Good morning. Good morning. This has um, been a while since I've spoken church, um, for a few years now. And I, I've got to confess, it's the first time I've ever worn a kind of hands-free mic. It's freaking me out a little bit. I don't know what to do with my hands. I feel like I should have something here. <laughs> I feel like I should have like a big sort of power suit with shoulder pads and a fancy tie and telling you how to improve yourselves and you know, dance around the stage, but uh, that's not my style. In case you've been hiding under a rock for the last, uh, I guess, 10 weeks it is now, as a community, as a church, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, um, which we heard from Kel in the very first week, is actually the account of Peter, the Apostle Peter, written down by Mark, John Mark, I think it was. And so we've been going through through that as a, as a church, and I don't know if, about you, if you've been following on, along with us and reading at home, I found it really refreshing just to read, uh, read through Mark and just to follow through these simple stories that tell us more about Jesus and who Jesus was and what he did and what he cared about, uh, what he valued. And this week we're looking at chapter 11. Now, you know, all the previous chapters have been incredible. We've, uh, we've heard about Jesus healing people. We've heard about his miracles, his, his parables and his teachings. Uh, but now we're getting into the juicy part of, of Mark. This is where stuff gets real for Jesus. You know, this is, if this is a novel, this is where, this is the climax of the story. This is the beginning of Passion Week. Um, and Passion Week is the, 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 the week that we celebrate as Christians when Jesus uh, comes to Jerusalem uh, and it's the week leading up to his death. So it's a very, um, very full on time for Jesus and his disciples. You know, this is, uh, we read in, in um, Luke 9, 51, that at the, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So this is now Jesus arriving at Jerusalem. He set his face for, for, for Jerusalem. He's done all these amazing things over the last three years, and now he's arriving at, his, um, at the destination that he knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be arrested and killed. He knows he's going to be betrayed by these group of men that he'd been spending you know, these three years of his life with, his best mates are going to turn their back on him. And ultimately, he's going to be rejected by his father. Uh, to be able to set your face resolutely, resolutely towards Jerusalem and deliberately go to this place of, of what you know is going to be anguish is, uh, I find that incredible. He knows he's going to be arrested, tried and ex executed uh, in the most painful manner. And as we read through Mark 11, we're focusing on Three particular, three, maybe four particular parts of the account. And the first of which is a triumphant entry. That's what, we call, that's what we read about when we open the book of Mark, chapter 11. And that's not in the words, that's just in the title, triumphant entry. So what's that all about? Let's read it. Um, Mark 11, 111, if you're following along in your Bibles. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing? Untying that colt. They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they'd cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went, to, went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, there are three things to highlight in this passage. The first thing to highlight is that this is to fulfill prophecy. Um, this whole, you might think, why, does, why, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he getting on a cult to enter Jerusalem? It's actually to fulfill prophecy. We read in Zechariah 9, 9 to 10, the prophet Zechariah saying that the Messiah is going to come riding on a donkey. Rejoice, shout in triumph, O people of Israel. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble. Riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I'll remove the battle, battle chariots from Israel and the war horses for Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So this, the first thing about this that we read is that this is to fulfill, pro, fulfill prophecy um, and to highlight Jesus' humility. Um, second thing is Hosanna. Hosanna. So this is, the, this is the word that the people, the crowds shout as Jesus uh, rides through um, the streets of Jerusalem. Hosanna. So Hosanna is a, a Jewish word, um, which literally means please save or Lord, please save. And it started out as a, as a cry for help to God. But over time, um, it became a shout of, uh, of joy, of uh, anticipation of God saving or remembering that God had saved. So these people are shouting, Hosanna, they're saying, please save, please save, please save. That's what they're shouting when they're, when they're saying Hosanna. It's an Aramaic, joyful Aramaic, Aramaic ex exclamation of praise. Um, and so we contrast this with the shouts of crucify him four or five days later. I find that contrast pretty incredible. The next thing is how could this be a triumphant entry? I don't know who sets the, the titles in the chapters in the Bible. I don't know who sat down and did that. But every Bible you read through, the title they have for this section is, is called The Triumphant Entry. Now, how is this, how is this triumphant? The, the, word, the word triumphant comes from the Roman word or the, the Latin word triumphus. And that was a word that was associated with the, uh, the military commanders, the generals that had been triumphant in battle and they would have a parade through the streets, um, and that was called their triumphus, and they were lifted up above every other Roman citizen for that period of time. They were, it was a ticker tape parade through the streets, um, and they were followed by their, by their armies, and they were followed by their captives and their spoils of war. It was to honour and declare this one person who had been victorious, and it was done in such an amazing, um, huge way. The streets were lined with people. They're riding on horses. Um, it's an amazing chariot. They follow, like I said, they're followed by huge crowds of, of, of people. Um, it's all to celebrate who, how great this general has been, how amazing he is, uh, public celebration. Um, and the word pompa that we, we associate now with pompous uh, it literally means parade in Latin. Um, and I think, you know, given that it was grand final weekend just not long ago, I'm reminded, when I think of this sort of scene, I'm reminded of a ticker tape parade. I don't know if you've ever been to one. Um, we kind of do things a bit funny here in Victoria, I've noticed. We, we do the parade before the grand final. Um, but growing up in Adelaide um, back in 2004 when the mighty Port Adelaide Power won the flag, 
We had a parade through the streets of Adelaide, through King William, King William Street, if you've, if you've ever been there. And there were like, I don't know, a few hundred thousand people turned out to, to celebrate, <laughs> to celebrate these, this, this victorious team coming through the city. And so the streets were lined, um, you know, streamers and balloons and, and people, the, the, each player is, is, is fated and they're brought through on these, I don't know, what a Mercedes or some fancy car or fancy ute uh, on the back of it. And everyone's just saying how great they are. And I think when I think about Jesus entering in into the through the gates of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, a donkey that's never been ridden. I mean, I don't know. I'm no equestrian uh, person, but I'm riding something that's never been ridden, and a donkey. I, I can't see that being a very glamorous mode of transport. Uh, I, I can imagine the donkey struggling, saying, "Well, I've got someone on my back." On my back. Um, he's literally sitting on someone's co- on the cloaks of people that have just they're, they're old and they're sweaty. Um, and I contrast that. I think that's the equivalent of, of Jesus rocking up um, down Swanson Street or wherever the parade goes here um, on the back of like an old dodgy, you know, rustled out ute. And he's trying, you know, not much fanfare. Um, and yet that, that describes the king that we serve. That describes Jesus' nature. That points, paints a picture to us of who Jesus is and how, how he announces him, himself um, shows us that he is, a, he is incredibly humble. He, uh, he resolutely sets his face to Jerusalem and he publicly announces his arrival and he, do, he does it in a way that shows that he is a, a humble king. He is not about the big um, look at me. He's focus, focusing on others. Um, second part is this fig tree. So I'll read, it, read uh, from, from verses 12 to 14. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, this story, um, as a kid and and even in recent times, I would read it and go, what? This does not make any sense. This is not the Jesus I know. What? How can you get angry at an inanimate object just because it didn't have figs? What's that about? It, it, it was so puzzling to me. It has been for, for many years, and it just didn't make any sense. Um, but to understand that, I think we need to look at some of the context. Um, fig trees normally bear fruit twice a year um, in June and in September. And the unique aspect of this plant is that they, they leaf before they, uh, they, they grow leaves before they uh, have their fruit. Um, and its leaves appear after winter. Um, sorry, the unique aspect of this plant is that it bears fruit before its leaves appear after winter. So the fig tree has held great importance for the Jews in several ways. Figs were eaten commonly as a snack or a meal supplement. They were dried or saved for winter, baked into cakes, um, even if the fruit was not yet ripe. Um, they would have edible buds that could be picked off and eaten. Um, so the, the thing to take away here is that a fig tree and leaf, even though it wasn't in season, um, would still have been expected to have some fruit. You see a fig tree and leaf, you go there and you expect to find something, even if it's a bud you would nibble on. And Jesus is hungry. He's, he's hangry. Something's going on here. Um, but it's not really the fruit tree itself that has upset Jesus. Um, we need to look back at the evening before. If you remember the passage when we read about Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, 
It also says that he goes to the temple and he looks around. But because it's late, he doesn't do anything and he goes, he goes out to Bethany. Um, so, he, so he's seen something at the temple that's upset him and that's shaped his, his uh, mood in the morning when he goes to this fig tree. Now, one thing to point out is, so here's the temple mount at the left-hand side of your screen there. Bethany is sort of you know, a few kilometres outside of the city. Um, so Jesus comes into Jerusalem, checks out the temple, sees something, and then he, he, he goes away and he goes out to Bethany, which is where um, Lazarus, Lazarus, Lazarus uh, Mary and Martha live, is his good friend. So it's, it's interesting that uh, at a time when he's about to head into the, the craziest week of his life, he goes and spends time with his, with his closest friends. And John, uh, in the book of John, it tells us that he, he shared a meal with, with the, three, the three of his friends um, at Bethany at this time. And I wonder what, what was going through the disciples' mind um, at this point, because Jesus has been talking. We've, we've read about this earlier in Mark. He's talking about his, to his disciples about the fact that he's going to die. Uh, and they, they can't get their heads around it. What's going on? And yet here they are at a place where they've witnessed Lazarus um, being raised from the dead. Um, they still haven't been able to put, put two and two together. Um, and John's account further tells us there was a large crowd in Bethany um, as news spread of, of his, his resurrection. Um, so something, in the, something that Jesus observed while he was at the temple has, his, has him riled, and there's something about the fig tree that's triggered this anger, um, something that's representative. Something's going on. So this brings us to the temple. So here's, here we get to see what it is that's upset Jesus, what it is that's made him angry. Um, he's not angry because he's hungry. He's not hungry. He's angry because of something he's seen at the temple. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves uh, and would not let anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So again, something that Jesus has seen at the temple has angered him. Um, people selling things and commercialising things in the temple courts. Um, this was the time of Passover, so there were tens of thousands of people in, that had come from, from throughout Jerusalem, uh, throughout, throughout Israel to celebrate Passover. And people had been filling the, the temple courts um, with, with tables of merchandise, they're selling things, they're making money out of this, this whole thing, this whole week. Um, and that, that's upset Jesus. Uh, and again, I think at a super, superficial level, I think, yeah, that's, that's right, they're not respecting the temple. You know, of course Jesus is angry, that's what this is all about. But this doesn't still, still doesn't fit with, you know, the Jesus we read about. Um, you know, we, we see that he dines with tax collectors, we see that he, he, um, he hangs out with people that are not doing the right thing. So is, is his anger direct, directed at the people selling stuff? And is it, is it about that or is it something else? And to understand that, this, we need to go and understand a bit more about the temple and how it operated. So this is the temple back in Jesus' day. What you have is the, the Holy of Holies in the centre here. The high priest would hang out in this court or in this, this zone. Um, you had a lot of different walls and, and different sections. This was the court of women. 
And then around here was called the court of, actually outside of this, this wall, outside of that was called the, the court of the Gentiles. So Herod had set up a wall called the Soreg around that surrounded the temple. So Gentiles could come in, but they could come no further. This shows a bit more of the Soreg. So this is a side view of the temple. Again, you've got the, the Holy of Holies. You've got the altar. You've got the, this is where the court of priests are, the court of women. So the further you go into the temple, the more holy it is, the more, the more serious it becomes. So where Jesus is and where these people are setting up tables is in the court of the Gentiles. It's beyond the Sarah, sorry, when, when you say it's temple courts, it's where the Gentiles are, Gentiles are hanging out. Um, uh, the Gentiles or non-Jews, they're permitted to enter the temple area. They could walk within it, but they were forbidden to go any further than the outer court. They're excluded from entering into any of the inner courts by the Soreg or the middle wall of separation. And there were warning signs in Greek and Latin um, that were placed to give warning of penalty of death. This is, the, this is sort of a, a stone that they've dug up. I think this might be a, a mock-up of what was there, but um, this is the, one of the stones that was set up on the wall to warn people of, of um, not entering in. If you weren't a Jew, no intruder is allowed in the courtyard and within the walls surrounding the temple. Whoever enters will invite death for himself. So this was, a, this was separating uh, the non-Jews from, from the inner workings of the temple. So it's in these outer courts of the Gentiles that Jesus came and he drives out the money changers who've been accumulating wealth, wealth by using the temple as a place of merchandise. Um, and so people are setting up stalls in the court of the Gentiles. And it's, we get a clue to what has angered Jesus when he says, uh, my house would be called a prayer for all nations. So God's design for the temple was that it would be a blessing to all nations. It would be a place that people could come and, and worship to witness or be set up as a testament to, to God's glory. So it wasn't just meant for the, for the Israelites, it was meant to bless all nations. And yet here people were devaluing the, the court of the Gentiles by setting up tables, setting up their own um, businesses and crowding and, and distracting or not allowing um, Gentiles to really come in, uh, non-Jews to come in and, and partake in what the temple had to offer. And I think that's what... That, to me, is what Jesus is angry about. He's angry that what God had meant to be a blessing had become a, a barrier and a burden, and, and, and people had devalued, the Jews had devalued that by cluttering this space had been set aside for the, for, for the Gentiles uh, by placing tables, selling stuff in there. Who cares about the Gentiles? We can set up here. You know, we, won't, we wouldn't ever think about doing that in the Holy of Holies, or even the Court of Women, but we'll do it in the Court of the Gentiles. That's what, made, that's what made Jesus angry. So we understand a bit more the kind of metaphor that the fig tree is. The fig tree is a historically a symbol for, for Israel. Um, so in cursing the fig tree, Jesus is saying, this way of trying to produce fruit, looking good, having the appearance of holiness, but it doesn't really produce any fruit, that's no longer how I'm going to do things. I'm going to do things a different way. Um, there'll be a new way that I'm going to reach out to people and draw non-Jews and Jews together. You know, so what does this mean for us? It's, it's well and good to read this story uh, and point to the Jews, to the, deficiency, the deficiencies in the law, and say, yeah, they're bad. No, they, weren't doing their, they weren't doing their thing. They weren't uh, doing as God had really intended them to. So they're, they're, they're bad. But there's an application for us um, 2,000 years down the track. 
we're given a clue to what this is in, in March chapter 12, and I don't want to steal thunder for next week. I felt really self-conscious about encroaching into Mark 12. Um, but in Mark 12, we read, at the beginning of Mark 12, we read this story where Jesus is teaching a parable, and it's a parable really for the benefit of the, for the sake of the Pharisees, about the tenants. And this is the, the vineyard tenants where the, the landlord sends some messengers to collect his, his money, and they kill, the, to kill each messenger. And eventually he sends his son, saying, surely they're going to listen to him. And yet they kill the son. And Jesus says this, at the very end of that parable, which is, which is aimed at the Pharisees, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. And if you remember, that was the, the cornerstone bit. That was the, a reference in the same passage in, in Psalms that we read earlier that was about that had the Hosanna bit that people were quoting as Jesus came into, into Jerusalem. So Jesus is again going back to the same passage in talking to the Pharisees and saying the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Um, in Matthew 21, 43, it builds, it's the same account. He adds this bit. It says, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God, is, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So that's what this is about. This is about Jesus' dissatisfaction and anger that this old system, this way of doing things, uh, the temple set up and the law was not sufficient. It wasn't producing fruit. People had twisted the system that God set up to, to, to bless nations and bring people to him. So he's setting up this new way, and this whole thing about Jesus coming to Jerusalem is the start of that, that, that process of, of Jesus becoming the cornerstone and of having a way in which we can produce fruit. So what is a cornerstone? I don't know if there's any builders out there. Anyone? Cornerstone? Yeah? Yep, that's a, a good answer. Cornerstone. So cornerstone was a, is a, um, um, it's the first bit of, of, the, of the block of a building that you put down. It's, and it's the, way, the, the reason why it's important is it's the reference for every other block that goes in that building. If you imagine building a wall and it's, it's, it's generally in the corner, so if you want to have it level, you want to have it set correctly, uh, if you don't have a, a, a good cornerstone, your wall's going to be out of whack. Um, it's going to not be square. It's not going to be level. Um, and so it determines every other bit of brick in the structure is, is determined by the cornerstone. And so we see Jesus declaring that he is the cornerstone. The, the stone that the builders have rejected has now become the cornerstone. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the reference point for every other um, stone in the building. That is how uh, the, 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 the building is set up. In, in, a, in um, 1 Peter 2, 4, 5, and this is where the application comes down to us, it says we are living stones. It says as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then we read in, in, in Ephesians 2 that we are a holy temple. We are the temple. It's not a building anymore. It doesn't exist. It, we are a temple. We are, we are um, the place that God dwells and chooses to dwell. It says this, don't forget, I'm reading a bit before Ephesians 2 than what's on the screen, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision. 
They were proud of, of being set aside, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with, Jesus, with, Christ, with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility. He broke down the sorrow that separated us. He did this by ending the, ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Uh, together as one body, um, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are built on, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Now that's, I don't know if that's uh, sinking in, but that's pretty incredible. We are God's temple. God chooses no longer to, live in a, to dwell in a building. Um, there's no longer a place in Jerusalem where this is large structure that people go, that's where God is, that has all these beautiful um, decorations and an amazing um, elaborate whatevers. <laughs> it's not this huge building that God dwells in. It's you and I. We are God's temple. That's, let that sink in for just a little bit. That, that God no longer chooses to live in a building. He lives in you. He lives in me and in you. There's no longer a building. There's Darren. You are God's temple. So if you're God's temple, the spirit of God dwells in you. We are all God's temple. And that's, I think we, that's really abstract. We maybe don't really grasp what that really means because we don't understand the old, the old system and the old way of doing things and what the temple was like. But that's the reality. Um, and so no longer... Uh, what that means for us is that we are now performing the, the purpose, the plans of what God had in the original temple, and that was to be a place of worship, to bless, bless nations, to be a place of sacrifice. So that, that's gone, and in, in its place are you and I, uh, temples of the living God, called to worship, called to sacrifice, called to bless, other na bless nations. And all of this to produce fruit. All of it to produce fruit. That, that's, the, that's the reason we exist. That's the reason for the temple back then and now, is to produce fruit. And so it's time for some self-reflection. Are we listening to the lesson of the fig tree? Are we heeding the lesson of the fig tree? Are we looking like we should produce fruit? Do we have these beautiful leaves but empty branches? Um, either that, that can be either personally or as a church, corporately. Are we producing fruit?
even for small buds uh, that are still edible, we've got to, are we, what are we producing? And I guess secondly, are we guilty of treating the temple in the same way? When I say the temple, the temple and the temple, are we guilty of treating it the same way that the Israelites did back then, where we partition everything up and we devalue certain, certain parts? We devalue others, we judge others. We say, you can, you can uh, you're over there, you, you can't come into this, uh, this place, this is holy, you're not good enough. Um, are we behaving more like the Pharisees and placing ourselves above others? Are we creating walls that Jesus came to tear down? Do we put our own sorags up before others to say, sorry, you can't come in here? Do we compartmentalise our lives and hand over to God only the areas that we want to surrender? God, you can have my Sundays, but Monday mornings, don't know about that. We, are we filling all these areas with clutter uh, and distraction rather than allowing God to consecrate the whole building and to fill the whole building and dwell in the whole building and to, to bless the whole building? Um, perhaps there's areas of our lives we feel we're not worthy of handing over to God. Uh, we're devaluing these courts in our lives. I saying God could, possibly not, could not possibly be interested in that, that part of me. The truth is that God's desire is for you to hand it all over. It doesn't matter. The whole building belongs to him. Um, and I'll be following in the footsteps of our cornerstone. I'll be aligned with the servant king. This, this king that came on the back of a donkey, a wobbly donkey, on some sweaty cloaks, who set his face for Jerusalem, who set his face towards a place of anguish and death, but did it in such a humble way, who gave up his rights as king, his rights as the son of God. Um, that's, that's the one we serve. That's the, that's the cornerstone. Are we aligned with that as a church and as, as people? Um, are we aligned with the cornerstone? Um, are we putting others first and ourselves last, no matter who that may be, um, even our enemies? That's really hard, you know, someone that's, whether it's work, school, wherever, someone who you just don't disagree with, you disagree with or someone who really grinds your, your goat or someone who cuts you off in, on, the, on the monash. Your enemies. Are we surrendering our own will to the one who calls us? Or are we holding, part, holding on to parts of our life that perhaps we think are not important? <laughs> Um, well, perhaps you feel there's a, still a wall of separation between you and God. Perhaps you feel there's a wall of separation between you and God still, and that you're not valued, and God could not possibly want all of you. Um, again, all that God asks for us is to lay it down. Just to lay it down. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You are, you are val- we're all valued, and, and God demonstrated that. And Jesus demonstrated that in his sacrifice for us. Um, his value for us uh, goes beyond anything, anything that we could even imagine. Um, the worthy place on us. So I've just got um, the band's going to come up in a little bit. Uh, we're going to enter into some to more worship, and I just want to this to be a space where we are using the words from Mark 11, this 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 story we've just re- we've heard about the temple and about the fig tree and what it means for us here and now, um, and just as a time for reflection. And worship to say, right, Lord Jesus, 
Thank you for what you've done. I want to lay all that I have down at your feet. I want no temple courts to be cluttered. I want every part of me to be surrendered to you so that there can be fruit, so that my branches can be heavy with fruit, because that's how we bring fruit. So when we witness surrender, that's where the fruit comes. Lord Jesus, thank you that you set your face to Jerusalem. You didn't shy away from what lay in store for you. You, uh, because you knew what, what, was, what was at stake, you knew what was, what was going to come out of uh, your sacrifice. You de desired so strongly a relationship with each of us that you set your face to Jerusalem, you set your face to a place of betrayal and anguish and death. Thank you that, uh, that you're our servant king. You're not a king that lords us over, it, over us. You're a king that places himself below us. It's just uh, your humility is, is incredible, Lord Jesus, and we want to place you at the cornerstone of our lives. We want you to set, set the standard for, the how, for how we live life, for how we do things. We want our stones that are part of your building to be aligned fully with you. Um, we want, thank you that uh, we have your Holy Spirit. Thank you that we are this now, we're now like, a, we're a living building, both as a church and as individuals. Help us to live in light of that, to just surrender everything to you um, so that we may have fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.